0: This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're going to be continuing on with a series of studies on Seeking the Truth And uh, just to kind of recap shortly, uh, we've talked about in our first study the idea of establishing what is truth. We found really there are about three sources of truth, those sources being Jesus himself, God Almighty, who is the architect, the creator, and and the giver of all this information. He's the source of truth. And then the apostles, and by proxy, the Word of God, which they wrote down when Jesus uh, gave them the Comforter, and they were inspired to write Scripture, and the Spirit gave them utterance, they wrote things down. We have a convergence of all sources of truth in one place in the Bible. We can read there, we can turn in in the pages of the Bible, and we have a document that is complete, total, and absolute truth. And it's a very simple thing, and it's a very wonderful thing that we have that, that source of truth. You can't go out into the, into the world and find other sources of truth. And if something is opposed to the Word of God, it's not true. And we need to understand that. We need to get that through our minds as, as young people, as old people, as everybody in between, that there is one source of truth, and that's all found in the Word of God. God is true, and he is revealing truth to us through his word. Jesus is true, and he is revealing truth to us through his word. There's not going to be another revelation given. There's not going to be some miraculous information put in your mind that you have something new and different. We have the word of God, and it is the complete and absolute truth. We saw that in in a couple of different places, but we studied in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 6 to see these things. The confession of Christ, being of God, and hearing the inspired word, this is truth. That's how we know the difference between truth and error. There's the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And we, we saw these things and studied about these things in our first study. Last time we went through these first six steps in a process of seeking truth. Seeking truth is really a process. Number one, you look in the right place. That's the Bible. You turn in the Bible, and that's the place you've got to look and search for truth. Now, once you're there, there are some other things that you have to do. You've got to, number one, acknowledge that you're going to come into a study of the Scriptures with your own thoughts and ideas. And if the Scripture is opposed to your thought and your idea, then you've got to let the scripture mold you. You don't look at it through the lens of, I'm going to make it say this because this is what I believe and this is what I think. You're going to look at it and you're going to say, okay, I must be wrong. I'm going to change, I'm going to flex to what the Bible says. Then you've got to go through a, a preparation process and that involves prayer. That involves asking God to open your mind and give you wisdom and understanding from the scriptures. That involves putting yourself in an environment conducive to learning, a quiet place where you can read and you can study and you can understand the scriptures. Then it's as simple as just opening up the old book, the old pages of the ancient document and reading it. Just reading it. Something as simple as that. Remember we looked at that slide that said uh, 40-something percent or high 30 percent of people never read the Bible. Only 11 percent of all people in the United States read their Bible every day. 11 percent. That's not a very good number. To hold that book in high regard, to say it is the source of all truth, absolute truth, why wouldn't we open it and read it every day? We have to. And if we're obeying God and working for God, we're going to read that document every day. And then we said meditate on it. There's only so much time you can read. I understand that. You can't read the Bible necessarily all day long every day. You have other things you've got to do. But you can meditate on it. Meditate day and night, the psalmist said. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, rolling it over in your mind, revolving in your mind, thinking about the Word of God. And when you encounter a situation, then you know, okay, This is what the Word says about this situation, and so I can approach it in this fashion. So that was the first five steps. We pick up here, and I'm just going to cover one more step today. I wish I could get through the rest of the steps and finish it up, but for some reason my brain just doesn't work that way. And I feel like this one's important, and I want to spend some time on how we interpret the Word. Did you know you can know every single word in the Bible and not know what the Bible says? You could quote every chapter, every verse, know everything, where every period is, and comma is, everything, and not know what the Word of God says. And we'll read an example. If you want to look in Matthew the 26, or the 22nd chapter, excuse me. In Matthew the 26 or 22nd chapter, there's a group called the Sadducees, and they have come to Jesus and they're going to ask him a question. Now, we need to understand something about the Sadducees before we go any further. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe there was a resurrection. They thought once you were dead, that was just it. And that separated them from the Pharisees in their belief. So they don't believe in a resurrection. They come to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, we have a question. And they began the question with this. Moses said, and then they asked the question. Moses said, That if a man dies having a wife, and he doesn't have any heirs or any children with that wife, then his brother should marry that woman and raise up seed in his name. They said, Moses said. Now, did they know the Scriptures? That's my question to you. Did they know the Scriptures? They said, Moses said, and they gave a quotation. Really, a quotation right out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. They knew what the scripture said. Moses had commanded that exact thing. Here's the problem. Moses wasn't talking about the resurrection when he talked about that. Moses didn't even have the resurrection in his mind when he was given that commandment. And Jesus had this to say to them. You do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. You see they said if this man dies and He doesn't have any children, and his brother takes this woman as his wife, and and then his brother dies. And and the younger brother takes this woman as his wife, and then the younger brother takes the woman unto seven people. Then there must not be a resurrection, because whose wife would she be in the resurrection? That was their question to Jesus. Jesus said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. He goes on to say that in the resurrection, there's neither marriage nor given in marriage. There's, there's no such thing as marriage in the resurrection. She's not anybody's wife in the resurrection. This verse in Deuteronomy had nothing to do with the resurrection. And yet they took their belief and put it in, they inserted it. They said, we know the scriptures. Moses said. And so there must not be a resurrection. But that wasn't the truth at all. Jesus said, you don't know the scriptures. They knew what it said, but they didn't know what it meant. In Nehemiah uh, chapter 8 and verse number 8, they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about interpreting scriptures, giving the sense, being a sense maker. As children of God, we've got to be sense makers of the word. We can read the words all day long. But if we can't make any sense of it, if, it doesn't, if we can't tell what it means, then it's not helpful to us. Really, there are two possibilities. Either God gave us a book that we could understand and make sense of and make application of in our lives to help us and give us meaning in life and give us the hope of salvation, or else he just gave us a bunch of words that he really doesn't care how we interpret it. We can go about living life any way we want to. Uh, in that fashion. And, and I think if we go into the word of God. We can tell that that second thing is not true. God has given us a book we can interpret. We can tell what it means. We can make sense of it. And Jesus himself illustrates that. Here they are on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke 24 and verse 27. It says in beginning at Moses and all the prophets. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures. The things concerning himself. Other translations render this word expounded as interpreted. It means the same thing. Jesus interpreted the scriptures. Jesus took the the prophecies of himself that were given by Moses, that were given by King David, that were given by all the prophets throughout the ages. Jesus took and he expounded and interpreted those scriptures to these two men that he walked along with and he showed them who he was. And those people said, didn't our heart burn within us as he told us these things concerning himself because he was teaching them truth. Jesus knew how to interpret. Jesus' apostles knew how to interpret. And so what I want to do for just a few minutes is I want to take and look at how they interpreted. When they saw a piece of scripture... And they were helping make sense of that piece of Scripture. What were they doing with it? How were they interpreting it? Because I think then we can apply that to our lives today and we can interpret the Bible in the same way. The first thing we see them do is rightly divide the book. They rightly divide the book. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, I'm sure you all know 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed Rightly dividing the word of truth. There are divisions in the word of God. There are books that were written by different people in different times. And that divides up the word. We need to understand those divisions. That they have different authors talking about different things in different time periods. There are different dispensations. You've heard us talk about these three dispensations of time. That there was a patriarchal age, a mosaical age. And now we live in the Christian age. And when God would make a covenant with Abraham in the day of the patriarchs, we can't necessarily take that and apply that into our lives and our area today. And when God gave commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave more than ten, by the way. He gave many more than ten commandments. But even of just those ten commandments, we can't necessarily pluck them out and apply them in our day and age. That's not being fair with the word. And Paul, as he admonishes a man that was going about to be an evangelist, he says, As you study and try to interpret the Word, you've got to divide the book. You've got to divide it into these dispensations of time. And you've got to understand the principles that were applied. Now, we can look back in the day of the patriarchs, and it says that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. And so we can look back here, and we can look at the life of Abraham, and I'm going to tell you something. We can learn a lot about human nature. We can learn a lot about how humans react in certain situations. And we can look at Abraham and say he did some things well, and he did some things that he shouldn't have done. And many, many other characters. We can look back and learn about human nature. We can learn about the nature of God. We can learn what makes God angry. We can look at the children of Israel and see them ignoring God and going away from Him and living in the world and in a worldly fashion. And we can see what makes God angry. And it still makes God angry when we sin today. There's no doubt about that. But for me to take a command given in the mosaical time to keep the Sabbath day and say, well, we've got to keep the Sabbath day today, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not rightly dividing the truth. That's not understanding the scriptures. That's making an error. We can see here the list, and I won't go through all this, but we have 39 books in the Old Testament. Some of those books were law, some were history, some were poetry. Some were the major and the minor prophets. And then in the New Testament, we have the Gospels. We have a book of history and the book of Acts. We have the epistles written by different authors to churches, to individuals, to others. And then we have the book of prophecy and the book of Revelation. So we need to understand and divide this and, and know a little bit about those books when you're reading them. That, that it doesn't all apply just the same. We have to have an understanding of when was the book written and those kinds of things. Why? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. The old law uh, that we call that, which most of the time when I say old law, I'm talking about the law of Moses. uh, That law was nailed to the cross. It ended with the death of Jesus. And so to take any command, to take and say, you know, these, these holy days that it talks about in the Old Testament, we need to keep those. To say we need to uh, uh, not eat pork and catfish because those things were banned under the old law and we shouldn't do that. To say that we need to be sacrificing animals and, and uh, doing different kinds of animal offerings and sacrifices, none of that would be correct because it happened in a different dispensation of time. Colossians 2 and verse 16 and 17, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect to a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. It can't be any more plain than that. Those things don't apply anymore. What we need to be most concerned with as far as law is the things we find written in the New Testament. Now there's some ground in there in the Gospels in which Jesus is living under the old law but giving command about a new law that's coming. And there's a verse that says, until the time of John was the law and the prophets and since that day the kingdom of God has been preached unto you. And so we need to understand that as well. Jesus lived under the old law but gave commands concerning the new and coming law. And so we have to know that in order to make sense or interpret a scripture properly. The next thing goes without saying, and that is that we should properly define words and phrases. When you're interpreting the Word of God, you need to properly define words. David gave a, a good example this morning when he was talking about offended. And if we become offended... You know, we don't use the word offended like it was used in, in the King James version of the Bible, where it's really it's referring to enticing someone to sin. That is offending them in the New Testament when it talks about that. When we offend, I just think about making somebody mad, making them upset. That's the way we use it today. And so we need to understand the English language has changed. The Spanish language has changed since the King James Version of the Bible was written and since the Serena Valera 1960 Version of the Bible was written. I think about the word charity. You know, if somebody says charity to me, I think about the Red Cross or some other charitable organization that I could give money or clothes or funds or something to. That's what I think about when I hear the word charity. But in 1 Corinthians 13, charity means love. And so we need to understand that that meaning has changed over time. The other aspect of that is that even though the English and Spanish languages have changed, that's not the way the Bible was written originally anyway. It was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And we need to have the tools, a good Strongs, a good Lexington, that we can turn and, and see what the definition of those words were in their original language. I'm not saying you've got to be a Greek so- scholar. But I'm saying when you run across a word that you don't know what means or a passage of Scripture that just doesn't seem to make sense, look up the words and define the words. And that will help you in doing that. I want to give you a simple example of this, and this is going to be Paul uh, interpreting here. But I think it's important. Genesis 22 and verse 18, you'll recognize this, uh, God giving a promise to Abraham. He said, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed me. That's a simple verse, isn't it? We, we understand that very simply. Now, here's what the Jews in the day of Jesus did. They went around saying, We are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Leave us alone, Christ. Quit telling us about this, what to do, who are you? We're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise because that's what we read in the scriptures, right? What did Paul say in Galatians 3 and 16? Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. They misdefined the word. They used a plural form, and they said, we're the seed of Abraham. We, plural, we're the seed of Abraham, so we're heirs according to the promise. Paul says, no, the promise was that in his seed as one, that's Jesus, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And when you define that seed as the singular and you define that seed as Christ, then it makes sense that you've got to have Jesus if you want to be saved. You've got to have Jesus to inherit the promise that was promised to Abraham. That's what it takes. And Paul said, this is how you define the word. We've got to be careful. We've got to properly define words and phrases in the scripture. Number three, the simple and the most obvious meaning is usually correct. Now, there are exceptions to this guideline. But usually, when something seems simple and straightforward, guess what? It's simple and straightforward. In the 14th Psalm, verses 2 through 3, it says, There's none that doeth good, no, not one. You know, that's pretty sad when you think about it. But his point is, everybody's under sin. We've all committed sin. There's not a perfect law keeper in the bunch. We can't do it. We can't keep the law perfectly. And that's what he says here. And we go along, and in Romans, he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. He says we're all under sin. We've all committed sin. It's simple. It's straightforward. There's nothing more to it. And to be honest, probably 90% of the Word of God is just like that. You read it. It's simple. It says what it says. And you move on. It's not hard. That's why reading is so important. But there are other times that it's a a little more difficult. And when that's the case, we need to always interpret a passage in harmony with the context. The context of a passage is extremely important. And we need to understand, so what are we talking about when we talk about context? Well, you have your immediate context, which would be the few verses preceding what you're reading there and the few verses uh, following what you're reading there. What's going on in that context? Then you have your broad context, meaning overall, when was this book written? Who is the author? What are they doing? What was their overall purpose in terms of writing this book or letter or history or those kind of things? So who was doing the writing or the speaking? That's important. We need to understand, was this an inspired writer? Sometimes and most of the time it is. Sometimes it's not. We have a a recorded conversation between two people. And guess what? Sometimes Satan is the speaker in the scriptures that you read. You need to know if Satan was the one doing the speaking. This morning the verse in Genesis was read. He said, Thou shalt not surely die. That was Satan doing the talking. We need to know that. Who were they writing or speaking to? What was the the general problems? I think about the, the letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. And they had some underlying issues at Corinth. Issues about how they were gathering together and assembling. Issues about how they were treating the poor. Those that, were, that had more money and more wealth. How they were treating. Those were some underlying issues. And that, that formulated the way that he wrote that letter to Corinth. That context is important. What were the circumstances surrounding that? When did it occur? What testament? What uh, covenant, what uh, dispensation of time did it occur in? Where did it occur? And why was it written? What was the overall purpose of the letter? These are the things we're talking about in terms of context. And when I think about that, I I think to illustrate this, I want to look at a passage in Matthew, the 19th chapter. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees ask Jesus a question. They say, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And uh, they come to this question, I guess, from a a study uh, in the book of Deuteronomy as well. And uh, they had asked uh, him this question primarily because they were doing that exact thing. They were putting away their wives for any cause. When they got tired of their wife, they would put their wife away. And... uh, it says here, uh, Jesus told them, you know, from the beginning this was not the case. God wanted a male and female to be married. He said, What man has joined together, or what God has joined together, let not man uh, put asunder. And so they said, Well then, why did Moses command to give a riding a divorcement and put her away? So they, they really want this to mean that. They have taken Deuteronomy twenty four and verse number one. And they have really pulled that out of the context in which it was given. Throughout that whole preceding chapter and following that uh, for a long ways, he's giving commands about relationships with other individuals, relationships with your neighbors, relationship with your spouse. And he's just given different commands about that. And Moses does give a command in that area. He says that if you find that you... You have no pleasure in your wife because of some uncleanness that's found in her. Then he said you put a bill of divorcement in her hand and then she can go and be another man's wife. The purpose of his writing there was really to protect women because of the abuse that was occurring. To protect them from being put out and not being able to go and be married to somebody else because then they had nobody to take care of them in those days and in that culture. And so, this is what Jesus said. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus said, you're really pulling that verse out of context. Moses wasn't saying you divorce your wife when you got tired of her. Moses wasn't saying just because you don't like your wife anymore, get rid of your wife. Moses, because you were already doing that gave this command for the protection of your wives so that they could go out and they could be another man's wife and so that they could be taken care of. He said, it's not all right to just divorce your wife for any reason. And he went on and talked about that quite a bit more. But that's just one little example of people pulling something out of context. And Jesus corrected them. He said he gave that command because you were committing sin and he needed some way to protect your wives that you were putting away. The next thing is to consider the author or speaker, and we mentioned this just a little bit when we were talking about uh, context, but we need to consider who is doing the writing or the speaking in a certain place. In Job, the second chapter, in the ninth verse, we can read this verse, curse God and die. Curse God and die. Well, you could say that's pulling that out of context, which is true, but the Bible says that. Who said it, though? Who was writing? Who was speaking during that time? Well, it was Job's wife. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity, curse God, and die? It was Job's wife. And there are whole chapters in the book of Job. It's a good example of that. That his friends wrote these long discourses and they weren't inspired men. And what they are saying there is not necessarily true. They're just saying something to Job. And so anytime we're reading a conversation in the Word of God, a conversation is recorded for us. It's very, very important to understand who's doing the speaking. Because there are things that somebody might be saying in there that's not true because they weren't inspired, they weren't of God. The conversation is just recorded for us and that goes back to context. If we take that conversation in its entirety, we'll learn something from it. We'll be able to see what the overall meaning was. Next, consider the author's style of writing. There are different styles that were employed in the scriptures and we, we looked at that real briefly in that slide I had up earlier. But, but here it is a little, uh, a little more clearly, maybe, or in a different way. There are books that are just historical in nature. And, and the book of Acts is a, is a good example of that. We have the history of the early church recorded for us. What's going on? What's happening? We have a bird's-eye view, thanks to Luke and his writing there, uh, of historical accuracy that we can learn about the history of the church. Very, very good and very useful uh, in that. Then we also have books of prophecy, and they get real difficult sometimes, don't they? Because the language that is used in a book of prophecy is not the same kind of language that's used in a book of history. In a book of history, it's pretty plain. He's saying this happened, and then they went to this place, and then they went to that place, and they talked to this group of people, and this is what happened as a result of that. And they go through. But in prophecy, we hear things like the moon is turned into into darkness. And the sun's turned into blood, and, and we see people having all these visions, and we, we see these candlesticks glowing and, and representing different things, and it, it gets kind of confusing, doesn't it? And we just need to understand that in prophecy, figurative language is very common and, and prevalent, really, in uh, books of prophecy. And then we have books of poetry, uh, that are written in a very poetic sense and, and the words that they choose and use are a result of, of trying to make that all be poetic and flowing in that kind of a way. We have epistles that were letters written directly to somebody or a group of, of people for a specific reason. And then Jesus taught in parables a lot. We need to understand what a parable was and uh, how he used those parables. When it says something is a parable, What is he really trying to teach? We can over-apply a principle out of a parable uh, when Jesus himself really tells us what he was trying to teach out of it. And then we've mentioned this, but it's very, very important. Understand if what you're reading is a narrative or if it's a conversation. Because if it's a conversation, we really need to get interested in who the writer or author is at that particular moment in time. Briefly, I want to go over this idea of literal or figurative because really when you're interpreting the Word, you have a couple of different lines of thought. You'll have people that say everything in the Bible is literal, period. And they'll take everything literal. And uh, there's some problems with that. I don't think everything is literal. There's things that just don't make any sense in the Bible if you read them as literal. Then you'll have people that are the whole other end of the spectrum. They'll say everything's figurative, and it's all figurative, and none of this really happened, and it's just a, just a made-up book that maybe has some good principles in there. But if you're trying to take it literal and you're trying to apply it literal, you're wasting your time. And the truth really is somewhere in the middle. There's literal points in the Scriptures. When the Bible says, Thou shalt do something, and it's a command from God, Thou shalt do it. That's literal. And then there are other things that are a little more obscure, and prophecy is a good example of that. uh, That's very much more figurative in the kind of language that they use. So how do you know? How do you know if something's literal or or figurative? Well, ask yourself these questions. Number one, does a literal interpretation involve some kind of impossibility or absurdity? And I've listed Luke 9 and verse 60 there. In Luke 9 and verse 60, Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Can the dead bury their dead? Is that possible? That's not possible. So this is some kind of figurative language that Jesus himself is using here. He's saying, and this man has said, Let me first go bury my father. And really he was just making an excuse to delay his following of Jesus. And Jesus makes this statement, Let the dead bury their dead come and follow me don't worry about that in John chapter 11 verse 25 we see this does the literal interpretation contradict other scripture and of John 11 verse 25 through 26 Jesus said unto her I am the resurrection and the life he that believeth in me though he were dead yet shall he live and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die believest thou this And in Hebrews 9 and 27, it says, It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Well, can both of those things be true? Jesus said, You'll never die. And then the Hebrew writer says, It is appointed unto men once to die. Well, he's talking about the second death. He's talking about a spiritual death. And he's saying we will not die spiritually if we follow after him. It's more figurative in nature. It's not literal death. It's not going into the grave. That can't be what he's talking about because those two scriptures can't contradict one another. So we know that one has to be figurative. Does a literal interpretation involve an immoral conclusion? John 6 and verse 53, Then said Jesus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Now if we literally took that to mean we've got to eat someone's flesh and drink someone's blood that's cannibalism that's immoral that's an immoral conclusion but we know that he's talking about doing that in a figurative sense in in memory and taking the unleavened bread as his body the fruit of the vine as his blood and remembering him and when we do that and come to that understanding we see this can't be literal it has to be figurative and we can find the proper meaning of that verse Is a figurative interpretation implied by the context? And I'll just put the book of Revelation up there. I think it's pretty clear. The mystery in verse uh, 1 and verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand. The seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are seven churches. Well, are candlesticks churches? (laughs) No. But... He's explaining to us that this is in figurative language. And the whole book is in figurative language. And we can then begin to get a better understanding of it when we're not trying to really apply those things as things that, that there's going to be this great beast come out and we're going to, make, we're going to see this big beast and, and uh, all that kind of fancy stuff. It, it's just not uh, literal in its application. Is a figurative interpretation demanded by the author? In John chapter 2 and verse 18, then answered uh, the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest all these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And then said the Jews, Forty and six years was the temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Verse 21, but he spake of the temple of his body. And so he tells us, I'm not talking about the literal temple. The author demands, he's talking about the temple of his body. He was using figurative language. He was using the temple as a symbol of his body. And so there's a lot of occasions where the author demands that we read this in a figurative sense. John 4 and verse 10, uh, we see that common sense sometimes Determines that something is going to be figurative. And I I read this well ago. But whosoever drinketh, or excuse me, I didn't read this one. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be for him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. We know that we're going to get thirsty. Common sense tells us we're going to get thirsty. I'm standing up here talking, I'm getting thirsty. And so that just happens but he's that means that has to be interpreted in a figurative sense and i hope you get the point there are other things we could talk about here but sometimes the context just demands that we read something to be figurative that doesn't mean the whole bible's figurative that doesn't mean that some of these actual and exact commands are taken figurative when they're obviously literal the the opposite is true also The next point I want to make is that you should always allow the author's explanation to stand. Jesus gives a parable in Matthew 13. It's the parable of the sower. And in verse 18, he says, Hear ye, therefore, the parable of the sower. And he tells us exactly what it means. He said that some seed fell by the wayside. That's people that hear and uh, they don't understand. And the wicked one comes in and moves, removes the word from their heart. He said some falls in stony places. That's when somebody hears the word and receives it with joy. But in time of tribulations, they, they go away and so on and so forth until the good ground. And he said that's when it falls on somebody with a good and honest heart, receives the word and brings forth fruit, and uh, a hundredfold, and so he tells us what it means. Let that stand. Don't go any further and try to determine something else. Jesus tells us what it means. Let that be good enough. And then we need to take care not to read more into the scriptures than is there. We can do that very easily, and I 've been guilty of doing that. I've been wanting to bind something. And so I want to find some scripture, and it may not really say that exactly, but I think I can make it fit. I think I can make it work, and we're just going to bind that. I want to read this one to you from the ESV in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse number 6. It says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He says, don't go beyond what's written. If it's written, apply it and let it stand. But don't go beyond that. Don't try to apply things that are not there. Don't say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. That's not in there. That's not written. Don't try to apply those things. Only apply what is written. We say, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible's silent. Except when we think it means this and and then we'll speak there too. (laughs) We can't be that way. The Bible's silent on a matter. It's silent on a matter. And that does leave some room for judgment sometimes. Let's be honest with ourselves. But we can't go beyond what is written. We've got to stop there. It is the source of truth, the source of all truth, the only source of truth. And if we're going to trust it and believe in it, that means sometimes we've got to stop there and not go beyond into something else. So that's the next step in the process. And that was a long one, I know, and I appreciate you bearing with me as we studied through that. But interpretation is important. I'll give you a little preview. The next thing is comparison. Once you think you know, once you've went through all those steps, and you feel like you think you know what a scripture means, you need to compare it back to other scriptures. And let the Bible tell you if you're interpreting that correctly or incorrectly, because the Bible won't contradict itself. We'll talk about that and and one other thing in our next study. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.